0: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is the Gator Nation football podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This
2: place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, my. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs.
3: Welcome back to the Gator Nation football podcast. It has been two months and one day since we have last released an episode. We know it's been a long time. We have felt it. Alan, it's so great to be back in studio with you.
1: It's just been too long, right? It has. I, I've i been itching. People have been asking about it. We're in a rainy day in Gainesville. We're going to talk spring. Lovely spring showers. We're going to get you ready for the spring game. I hope this is enjoyable for you. We're glad to be back.
3: I'm so humbled and, and honored.
0: When- this is a message from the Emergency Stuffed Crust Warning System. Cheese! Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pizza now has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust for just nine bucks. I repeat, it has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust.
2: Cheese!
0: That concludes the message from the Emergency Stuffed Crust Warning System. Get a large Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pepperoni Stuffed Crust Pizza for $9. Top four national pizza chains. Extra Most Bestest Pizza versus large round one topping pepperoni pizza. Everyday standard menu prices. Three feet of cheese before cooking at participating locations plus tax.
1: Pizza, pizza.
3: It comes to our patrons, Alan.
1: Yes, I love our patrons.
3: Two months and a day off the air and really let's let's be real we're not even like giving you guys twitter notices or facebook posts we're pretty much just the worst it's like <laughs> hey we're going to be back before the spring game and just trust us we'll be here and here we are by the way we are here but in the world we live in today there's no like we're going to hold your hand and give you updates all the time we're coming don't be afraid we just trust that you want the content and we're going to bring it to you. And our patrons have been faithfully supporting us through this time, which is just phenomenal. I mean, seriously, it's really humbling. It's really cool. And we even got some new patrons while doing nothing podcast-wise, which is, is super incredible. So Adrian Lopez, thank you for coming on board. Uh, it's awesome to have you. Barry Everett for upgrading your support level. Fantastic. Beautiful. You must have loved the no-show. Maybe that's a signal to us that you want us not to do a show and you're upgrading often, your support. Very appreciate that. And then Colin Crable. Uh, I hope that's right, Colin. That was not a confident way for me to say that. Uh, Coming in with a a hot medium dono, appreciate that as well. And still the undefeated king of the jungle, Alexander Leventhal. The king. It feels right to reference his name again. Not saying it on a weekly basis, Alan. I'm missing something by not saying it. So Alexander Leventhal, congrats. Continue the domination. May your reign go on endlessly. Game of Thrones starts soon. I don't know if we're going to have Game of Thrones patron style on this podcast in the fall. But for now, enjoy your spot. The uh, you know winter is coming, Long I live the
1: king. So it's spring. There's rites of spring, rites of passage. Every spring, the UF program, like many around the country, has a spring game. The culmination of spring practice, where the team implements new things, introduces new players, tries to take steps from what they accomplished the previous year, and then kind of a, a show for the fans, if you're not familiar, they hold like a mock game. A spring game those can take on a lot of different varieties and a lot of different formats so as people who intensely observe this program we're going to be watching uh, there's things that we want to see but it's not like a regular game you can't necessarily take the same things away so James put help us put this into context how how do you watch the spring game what's a good way to look at it
3: If you're a super fan, the spring game means a lot to you and you get really excited about it and you come to the game and you make way too much of whatever happens. That's the wrong way to watch it. It's easy to do that, to
1: make too many extrapolations over too small of a data set.
3: So let's start with that. Do not assume you have witnessed something that is going to carry over into the fall because very rarely is that actually true uh, based upon, let's call it like a fan flashy performance. There are, however, things you can pick up on that will be important, especially now that we have one full year of Dan Mullen under our belt. You would expect to see progress in certain positions, uh, things that are better than they were before. But mainly what I look for when I watch a spring game, Allen or some of the new players I want to see. What do they look like? How do they move? And then, of course, the quarterbacks. That's probably the thing you can take the most from. Not their numbers, not how many touchdowns they throw for, not how often we throw deep. But some of the the deeper mechanical Issues you hope to see them improve upon. Mm. Have they improved upon their technical skills? Are they reading the field faster? Is the ball coming out quicker? Are they able to make a better pre-snap read? That stuff does show up in a spring game. Uh, but again, huge, huge amounts of caution for individual player successes yes. on spring day. The coaching staff is essentially just trying to see who can handle the the lights, if you will, the pressure of having an actual crowd there. That is important to them to see how a young guy responds to that. But really, outside of all that, they kind of already know, based upon practice, who's been consistently performing well. This is a live theater production that will give them a different
1: dynamic to evaluate. This is a show. They're putting on a show. They're letting us in behind the curtain to see what they've been working on. So this is like, you know, if you have a kid and they're like, you know, they've been taking dance class. This is the dance recital version of this. There's nothing really at stake, but they're going to put on a show for the fans and for themselves. kind of a reward for the players and the fans, I think. Yeah, every year there's a spring game star, and sometimes that translates over. Uh, but I remember a few years ago, I think it was LaTroy Pittman, who had a great spring game, and then we didn't hear from him the rest of the year or ever after that again. Uh, that's kind of the tradition. There'll be some guy who pops and flashes, and maybe, if it's a Kadarius Tony type person, oh yeah, this is a taste of what's to come. But don't get too high or too low. I think one thing you can watch is who is playing? Who are they putting out there? Who are they putting in prominent positions? Um, Not necessarily their performance. Like You're going to see reported stat lines from the QBs or yardage from the wide receivers. Don't get too crazy on that. Like, oh, uh, Emory Jones went 9 of 11. Uh, Don't worry about that. Look, Look at what he did. What did he look like? What kind of throws were they asking him to make? So be more qualitative than quantitative as you observe this. And then I would say enjoy it. Uh, It's supposed to be kind of a fun thing. People back in Gainesville, I'd say if you're in town, show up. I I think that's good for a program. Uh, It's good for the players when the fans show up to this. So it's not like an obligation, but it's an opportunity to uh, enjoy some Gator football in the dead season of March and April. Okay, so we're gonna first start off with some spring storylines. So like I said, the coaching staff has been working to implement th- new things, new concepts, restructure old things, fix broken things. Um, so I'm sure they there's some narratives they've been ta- paying attention to. So James and I have not been at spring practice every day, but if we were, what would be some of the things that we would look for? What would we be trying to pick up? There's some things we already kind of know, right? We know, I think, who our starters, in the secondary, if everybody healthy is. We know that we have a good group of wide receivers. But there are some things that we're going to be paying closer attention to if we're observing. So, James, let's jump into those. Let's
3: start with the offensive line. We lost four starters from the offensive line. This is going to be something we talk a lot about heading into the season, during the season. It's going to primarily dictate how good of an offense we are. Unfortunately, Alan, we do not have a host of five stars coming in. We have some highly rated guys, some guys slightly under the radar, and some guys who have some experience. So with almost all of our starters being gone, the spring game is an interesting time to watch the offensive line because they split into two teams. Almost everybody on that depth chart is going to get considerable playing time, and it is a way to evaluate them. Specifically, you can evaluate, let's call them the more premier offensive line positions, left tackle and center those two are very, very important to a well-functioning offensive line. You can get a nice idea of how somebody looks if you've never seen them before. You can't, again, put all your your stock onto what that looks like, but it is a chance for you to look at how well does the line move? Are they false starting? Are they able to get their assignments correct? Kind of the things you would expect good coaches to be able to do with a new offensive line. Uh, that's probably the first place to start. Alan, I'm going to start with this one with you. Are you concerned about our offensive line heading into the season? And what if you are concerned would help to maybe alleviate some of those concerns from a spring game.
1: So concerned is an interesting word. I am deeply concerned. And once it's that this is the biggest question mark on the team, like you said, if there's one variable that would move us up and down that we have no data for, this would be it. Now there's a lot of question marks throughout the team and like, what about this guy? And what happens if this happens? But this is a place where we know there has to be a lot of movement. So, like you said, we're replacing four starters. And even the guy who's staying, uh, our center from last year, Buchanan, wasn't a guy that was like, oh, well, this guy's going to be a star. He kind of came out of nowhere to take that job. People had kind of written him off. And I think he did decently well last year, but you're not like, this isn't the five-star guy that we just slot in and we're like, okay, he's the one returner we feel good about. Uh, Brett Heggie is a guy who's, you know, been kind of a notable name along the line for a long time didn't play much last year because he was hurt so you can kind of pencil him in as a probable starter but the rest of it seems really up for grabs now there's some guys who have elevated a little bit throughout spring practice Um, we'll mention a few of them coming up but this is a place uh, where we want to see stability Um, are they not getting overrun by a much more formidable and experienced defensive line. Spring games are funny because every time the offense does something good, that means the defense did something bad maybe. Or every time the defense did something good, the offense did something bad. So when you're cheering on both sides, it creates kind of a, well, did that happen because one was good and one was bad? Or is it just you run a bunch of plays and those people are kind of equal and you'll even out 50-50? I think you'll get a sense after watching the relative strengths of our offense and defense and the, and the play of the offensive line, I think will tell you a lot um, throughout the year, but really in this spring game, how are we looking? If there are guys just living in the backfield on every play that does not bode well for us. And I doubt we're going to have our, you know, our firmly set offensive line that we're going to use in the fall in place on every snap, obviously. But if those guys are getting manhandled, that does not bode well. Are they holding their own? I think would probably be a good data point for this group. Anything else you would add on the offensive line? I was just thinking as
3: you were talking about the
1: offensive line
3: that a lot of times previous coaches we've had, especially McIlwain. And I know this from firsthand accounts from the program would limit certain position groups from doing certain things. There would be a narrative or a script for how the spring game wanted to go. We know from Dan Mullen's own words, he does not do that. So you can put some more stock into what you mentioned. If the defense makes a good play or the offense makes a good play, you can count on the fact that it's actually fair competition, uh, which is one thing that I actually really appreciate. I used to go into spring games under previous regimes and think it doesn't matter what I see. I have no idea what they're doing. Probably. Yeah. They're telling the defensive line, don't go hard. They're telling the defensive line on this play. Don't stunt. Don't do this. Don't confuse the offensive line. Make it look this way, Uh, which is not fair. Obviously, And I I think from what we know now, it's a part show, yes, and also part meritocracy for the players. Uh, Anything they do or they earn on their own is, in fact, something they're earning on their own in, in a fair situation. And that is a nice thing. So I will say, if you do see the offensive line performing poorly or performing well, it's highly likely they're doing that against an opposing side who's actually trying to prevent them from performing well, which brings a small measure of comfort. Speaking of a position group that sometimes gets extremely fluffed up, in a, in a game of this magnitude, Allen, would be the quarterbacks.
1: Yes. So let's talk about the QBs. They, this is usually the focal point, unless you have just a really established like four-year starter, and you're probably not looking at that starter. You're probably looking at his backups or something. Now, we do have an entrenched starter in Felipe Franks, um, and we have some other guys on the roster, the Jones and Jones, Emory and Jalen. Uh, so we're going to talk about them in a minute. But Felipe is a guy who seems like he's got a stranglehold on this position. Now, it, it's not out of the question for him to lose it. it he's not as entrenched as um, certain guys are around the country who are, who are stars of their programs. But ho- hopefully for Felipe Franks, from the coaching staff perspective, that he's going to take another step forward, hopefully a big step forward, and maybe get to another level. What would it look like in your mind for Franks to go to the next level? And what kind of evidence of that could we potentially see on Saturday? We've heard fantastic practice
3: reports about how good Felipe Franks looks, which to me means nothing. If you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you know that I could care less about practice reports. And really, frankly, I don't care about practice. Games and practice are two entirely different things. I do not think that they're entirely indicative of what happens in a game. So with that being said, spring game is somewhat of a game. Quarterbacks are not going to get hit, so it's not really a game. But something goes on. In Franks' case, though, it's actually a great case study. There are so many next-level things that he doesn't do well that it would be immediately recognizable if he did them well. Uh, one thing we know would be you know touch passes on a deep ball, right? And we've heard in spring practice that that's actually been something he's been throwing very well. When he was asked about this, he, quote, made no changes to his deep ball approach or throws, but he's apparently hitting them. That's not that surprising. Most deep ball throws come with confidence, come with throwing the ball on time, come with releasing it to a receiver you have a rapport with, all of which he should have a much better understanding now, you know, one and a half years in the Dan Mullen system. So what do I want to see from Felipe Franks in this game? I want to see improved footwork. I want to see better pre-snap reads. I want to see more committed throws to his second look. You rarely see him go to a second look. How often is he coming off the first look, going to the second look? Is he able to come off a right side read and move to the left side of the field? How quickly is he checking the ball down? Those are the sort of things you'd like to see him do faster and better. uh, And that would be a significant upgrade uh, from what we saw last year. That's what you hope has happened in the offseason with a coach like Dan Mullen. Felipe Franks himself remains a big question mark. The fact that we're even sitting here, Alan, having this quest, this conversation rather about Felipe Franks being the starter, taking steps forward is rather incredible. When last year I said, if Felipe Franks was our starter by game one or two or three, we were in trouble, right? That meant Emory Jones wasn't as good as we thought he was. And while that statement statistically is more or less kind of the same, you know, Felipe Franks won games last year, but as a quarterback, he was very below average numbers wise, although his numbers were, were nice, right? He had a lot right. of touchdowns, very few interceptions. As far as quarterbacking by passing the ball down the field, uh, your efficiency rating and those sort of things very low. So in a weird way, effective because Dan Mullen managed him well. So what does that mean? We need to move him out of like super limited game manager to functional quarterback that can move the ball down the field with a passing game. And we need to see some of those things we mentioned. Whether or not that's going to happen, I have no idea. I will already say this. Dan Mullen has got more out of Felipe Franks than I thought he could. I don't know that Franks can take the next step. But if he does, Allen, Franks could become a viable NFL target because his arm is so good.
1: He's got good size and good
3: Everything you'd want measurable-wise. But so much of quarterbacking is between the years. And you can only go so far with the guy. So I want to ask you this question. And this is a reversal of last year's question, which is fun. If Franks doesn't win the starting job this year, and by all accounts, he's already got the starting job, are we in trouble? Does that indicate something bad?
1: I would say yes and no. If it's because Franks has plummeted and like mentally he's gone off the rails or something like that, then that is bad. If it's because Emory Jones or I guess hypothetically Jalen Jones, the true freshman, are a phenom, then that is great. Then that is the best news because it means you beat out a legit, legitimate guy who can win games and you're just clearly better than him. And we've seen that Dan Mullen is very reluctant to play younger players before he thinks they're ready. So that means a guy would have to be a supernova. I don't think we're going to get that out. So I think most likely if Felipe is not the starter uh, from the trajectory we're on, it would be bad. It means that he's collapsed mentally, emotionally, or physically. Uh, so that wouldn't be good. Um, what about you? Do you <laughs> um, would that be bad news for you?
3: I don't think so. I actually think it could only be good news. And I'm going to take this approach. I've been consistent that I haven't seen anything from Franks to indicate that he could become like a very cerebral quarterback. I'd love to be wrong. I'm certainly not trying to dog the guy. I celebrated every one of our wins last year, got on film and said, hey, look, here's where we can get better. Here's where we're limited, but was excited with every win we managed to get. I think Felipe Franks right now, if he stayed exactly the same as he did last year, let's assume no improvement whatsoever, which should be the worst case scenario at this point in time with a guy like Franks and Mullen. If he doesn't get the job, it just means that we've now got a guy who's better than a, a benchmark that can manage a game well. That's what that should mean, which should only be good news, which is something we haven't had the luxury of, of having here at Florida in a long time. So I think Franks is a great gatekeeper maybe right now at his worst, and if he makes these next level steps, he becomes a maybe a top five SEC quarterback at his best. But I think he's a viable gatekeeper for Emory Jones staff to, to get past. So if Emory wants to play, he's got to beat a guy who's competent, who's been able to win games, who does not turn the ball over. And if Emory starts, that means that Dan Mullen thinks that there's more upside from Emory than Franks. I think that'd be a good thing. So I actually only see this as being a positive if Franks does not win the job. The only negative being that would mean Franks didn't progress. But I think given what we've seen, Franks taking a big step forward, while possible, isn't the trend line he's following. He could do it. It's happened. It's happened before. We're hoping for that. But it's not the more likely event. It's much more likely he remains kind of what he is. And we kind of cross our fingers and hope a guy comes in that surpasses that level.
1: Right. I I think if you're hoping for the best version of Felipe Franks as he currently exists, that is a guy I think could win a lot of games for us. If the rest of the team around him is dominant, I think you can win with him. I don't know that we would have said that at the beginning of last year. So he did take very appreciable steps. So I want to acknowledge that. Uh, What I'm looking for from him on Saturday, I I think two things. Ball placement. So in terms of accuracy, is it not just um, catchable ball, but is it a ball that leads to yards after the catch and is is a place where our receivers can do something with it on a deep ball? So ball placement, accuracy, and also what kinds of throws is he being asked to do? Is he attempting? Now, there's always going to be some swing passes and some wide receiver screens in this offense, and that that's going to be true no matter who is the quarterback. Um, but is he getting to some of those throws? Are they highlighting some of the throws that are downfield, more difficult timing throws? And is he able to complete them from his end? Now, of course, we'll have drops. Bad routes. It's a spring game. It's going to happen. Um, But that's what I would look for from him. All right, James. let's talk about the offense as a whole. Do you expect it to look any different, either functionally, schematically, like tactically? We've talked a lot about the
3: Dan Mullen offense. And it's run first, pass second. It's three to four yards per play, not necessarily a downfield attack. And it's stealing touchdowns with creative play calling which we were masterful at almost all of those things. We've talked about the limitations of such a strategy, playing against top-level opponents in high-leverage games. Will it look different? I think Dan Mullen probably wishes it would look a little different, but, Alan, replacing four offensive line starters is going to necessitate the offense play simple. You just don't really have a choice. Uh, Even if you are running the most wide-open kind of air raid-style system, you would have to simplify that because your offensive line would struggle to pass block uh, and run block, uh, specifically pass blocking. Pass blocking tends to be much harder than run blocking. So I think you're going to see a similar approach. I think you're going to see a similar approach that we have last year, and primarily, Alan, because our defense should be solid, if not exceptional, potentially, this year. Uh, But definitely, I'd say top 25 on paper. Which would lead me to believe that Mullen looks at his team and thinks I need to get kind of a similar level of production out of my offense as I did last year. And I have to do that with a bunch of inexperienced guys or guys that are a little unheralded or guys that are not going to be on the matchup sheet better than the team's defensive line that we're playing. And that, by its very definition, necessitates a conservative approach that you're going to need to take. Therefore, I don't think I'm going to see an offense that's appreciably different looking this year versus last year.
1: I agree. I mean, you might see some more pieces featured, some few wrinkles here and there, but how do you lose games next year with this team? It would be getting your quarterback sacked, hurt, throwing interceptions. I I don't think that Dan Mullen is, he's not inherently uber conservative. This isn't a well-must-champ type situation, but I don't know that we're going to see a ton of dynamism, especially in the early going, until this offensive line can establish themselves so it doesn't mean it won't be effective, but I don't know that it's going to look appreciably different, especially with all of the, the quarterback returning with the same like, position players and a new offensive line. So uh, I think the this, this staff has shown that they're going to be willing to uh, adjust to their personnel, but you know, have some similar personnel. So I think you're going to see a lot of similar things. So one thing in the spring game you won't see is obviously like a lot of quarterback runs, or if they do, they're not real ones because the defense can't tackle them. Uh, that's going to be really interesting to see in the fall and to note is how they utilize Felipe in the run game. They started to be very effective with him in certain situations late in the year. Does that carry over? Is he even more effective and in, in a bigger variety of situations Um, But we're not going to get to see that this week because they're not going to risk getting him hurt. Speaking of defense, last year we had to play a very
3: standard version of of a Grantham defense. It was as simple as it really could be. And that was basically because we were so limited at certain positions. We could not afford to run the 3-4 the way you want to run a 3-4. We were wildly successful with that 3-4 defense given the hurdles we had to face coming into the season. One of the things we talked about in our spring mailbag last year was switching to the three-four and kind of the the, the benefits/slash problems we would face and encounter. And the main problem was we really couldn't be flexible. We really couldn't give you a three-four front where we blitzed this guy and covered this guy. Teams knew exactly what each guy on our defense was going to do. It was a very stationary three-four defense, yet effective. This year, Alan, we should have a lot more flexibility, given that we have some depth, especially a linebacker. Even if these guys are inexperienced how do you see that flexibility changing how we play
1: well it kind of depends on how you want to use your linebackers and i'll include the nickel back in this category so we have some guys like amari bernie Trey dean some of the some of the safeties who could play a variety of positions david reese the younger one um we could see them line up in a variety of things are they a defensive back are they a linebacker could they even be a credible corner like we know Trey Dean was last year? So when you have guys who have positional versatility like that, it allows you to disguise much more what you're doing. Um, you see blitzes from different places. You see more complex coverages on the back end. And so you're not as dictated by like, okay, we're they're running the ball. We have to put this group in or they're passing the ball, so we have to put this group in. So I would say one thing if you're looking at, like if you're a person who's interested in – um schematically what we're doing on defense look at who's who's playing linebacker and how many linebackers we have out there and then the other person is who is playing the nickel is it bernie is it dean is it somebody else um and that might give you a clue to which way we're leaning in terms of how we want to attack teams in the fall so again i think Grantham is a really intelligent guy and he's gonna make changes week to week but he will still have baseline formats and things that he wants to do in a vacuum. So I would say if you're looking for two different guys, locate Amari Bernie on the field. Locate Trey Dean on the field. What are they doing? Where are they playing?
3: I would expect to see more aggressiveness this year, Alan. And like you mentioned, more aggressiveness from unpredictable areas. We know Grantham loves to blitz. We actually did not blitz. Nearly as much last year as Grantham's historical average would indicate, right? And that was because we didn't trust our safeties, and we just didn't have an ability. And we're to playing have, a freshman corner, correct? Also, didn't have an ability to have four linebackers in the field that could all play linebacker and cover. And so, if you blitz, you got to cover. And if if the team knows you're always going to blitz this guy because this guy can't cover, True. then it's really not very effective. But let's assume you have three down linemen, right? Three guys with their hand on the ground, and four guys behind them, and the opposing quarterback, which could be you in this case, has no idea who's blitzing and who's covering that becomes confusing. And that's what Alan's talking about when he's mentioning different coverages, you can have your outside linebacker blitz. You can have your inside linebacker, go cover a certain zone in a flat. And the quarterback has to make all of these reads in less than a second and a half. And it's hard. It's very hard for college quarterbacks to do this. So I would expect a lot of that. Are you going to see that stuff in the spring? Probably not spring games are notoriously simple and vanilla on defenses. They're trying to get guys to execute the basic concepts But that's going to be something to really, really look forward to uh, coming the fall. And I think for the spring, who plays nickel will be fun, like we're mentioning here, Alan. Is it going to be someone like Trey Dean, who seems like a natural fit, given his ability to cover uh, last year? Or will it be someone like Amari Burney, who's sort of more like a hybrid kind of character? Uh, But we do have a lot of flexibility this year. It's something I'm most excited about watching in the fall, for sure. And speaking of excitement, Alan, maybe the best thing about the spring game is getting to watch the new faces or some of the guys from last year that were hurt or got limited playing time that we're excited about. We're going to name some of these guys here. Let's start with John Greenard, the outside linebacker transfer from Louisville who's played with Grantham, going to be replacing Polite. How do you feel about him? What do you want to see him do on Saturday? Yeah,
1: he's a really interesting guy because he's seemingly stepped right into the starter's role. I don't know that he has the high-end upside that Polite, who's a potential first-round draft pick, does. But I think he's going to be a very capable and competent guy. Um, I think it's going to allow us to be a little more versatile, hopefully, in what we're doing with that position. You saw Polite rush the passer almost every time. Uh, Very occasionally, he would drop back in coverage. Um, But he's a very solid guy, seemingly. had some success under Grantham when he was there in Louisville. So he's a guy you're going to see on the field for the first time in a Gator uniform. How does he look? You know, what does he look like? How does he move? He's, this is a new thing for us. Uh, so that would be a cool thing. Another guy I'm looking at um, Chris Steele freshman, basically our top recruit cornerback. He's been getting a lot of playing time with Marco Wilson, uh, you know, still injured, not all the way back. And I don't know. I He's going to be in the mix for playing time in the fall. Um, I don't know how much he'll play when those guys are healthy but i'm sure we don't want to be in the situation where we were last year where basically henderson had to play literally every snap if he ever came off the field it was bad you know that's not good endurance wise for him to have to do that so this is going to be an important piece for us if this guy can live up to his hype and then the next two guys jalen jones the freshman uh true freshman qb and emory jones who you've heard about on this program james are are you excited to see them what do you expect out of them I'm excited to see Emery Jones because from
3: what I've heard from the team itself is that Emery has a, a real potential to to beat out Franks at some point in time, which means that people think he's got a ceiling that could be high. Last year, he was slow to make his reads, which is typical of a freshman. I want to see how he makes them this year. I think that the limited opportunities he got last year, Alan, he threw he threw some nice balls in games, which I'm going to count that more heavily than what you see in practice, the early word on Jalen Jones is that he's probably never going to play quarterback at Florida. Now, again, don't believe anything you hear coming out of spring practice because you never know. But that is the word. So for those of you that follow message boards or have been to a practice or love to kind of follow the gossip. And why rumor is that? Mill, because he's so raw? The thought is that he right he's not really a natural passer. We, in fact, chronicled this on the program. We talked about this when we talked about our incoming classes, that Jalen Jones on film is not a guy that you look at and think very accomplished passer. He very specifically is a guy that's a runner. And he's a guy that I think, you know, Dan Mullen likes, like we talked about, kind of a run first big kind guy. of guy, big guy, kind of fits the spot that he doesn't really Dan Mullen doesn't really recruit throwing quarterbacks per se. That's a big statement to make, but we've chronicled it again well on this show many times. He does rather lean to an athletic big guy that he thinks can be you know taught how to do it. But For whatever it's worth, the report seems to be that Jalen Jones may be used in more than a quarterback and may, in fact, never see the field as a quarterback. Fine. Whatever the case may be, there's a reason why Dan Mullen recruited him at this point in time. We'll give Dan the benefit of the doubt because he has been so successful at slotting those kind of guys in there. Uh, I am excited to see how they use him. I think it will be somewhat indicative, Alan, of what we're thinking. If we're hearing all spring practice, he's not going to play quarterback, and he barely plays any quarterback in the game, but he's used with the ones in some other position. And that's a small tip of the hat that they plan on getting him involved in other ways.
1: Okay, a couple more guys. I'm excited to see a pair of wide receivers. Trevon Grimes is a guy that you hear some heat on in the spring that he is he incredibly athletic. He started to make a move at the end of the season for more productivity and playing time. Um, does he carry that through? And then Jacob Copeland's a guy we got just a taste of. One of our highest recruits two years ago was hurt most of the year. Does he flash? How does he look running or out? So they make a point of getting him involved? And then um, another guy coming back from injury, Malik Davis, the running back, who his freshman year was a revelation. A guy who was like a three-star recruit and all of a sudden looked unbelievable. He played last year, some obviously, never looked totally right, and then got hurt again. Reports are is that he's mostly back to health. He looks good. How does he look in this kind of action? And then our, I guess, projected starting left tackle, Stone Forsythe, who's a massive individual taking over for Ivy. How does he look? How does he move? Is he up to the task of blocking some of these guys who are really, you know, above average pass rushers? So you'll be able to see him. He's a little bit out there on an island on the quarterback's blind side. So what do we get from him? How does he look? James, any thoughts on those guys or anybody else that you're excited to see?
3: Looking forward to seeing Copeland. I heard a lot from him, haven't been able to really see too much of him. A guy, uh, Tyree Cleveland, who who Mullen made a point to mention that he's kind of bought into being a team player. And we talked about the disappearance of Tyree Cleveland last yeah, year. Yeah, it's interesting. Very productive on the field under McElwain. Very explosive downfield threat. Was opened. And the opportunities he got, he would get open downfield, yet seemed to kind of fade. And I think Dan Mullen's giving you some information there that there was more going on than just what was happening on the field. And so I'd like to see what he's going to do. I still think he's got a lot of talent. Obviously, our receiving core is, is stacked with talent. And the linebackers are going to be, I think, I- incredibly interesting all year long. A lot of good battles going on there. Uh, Andre Chatfield, who is going to be in a battle, potentially with James Houston. See so you can take that spot. The young David Reese, as you mentioned, the highly touted Muhammad uh, Diabate, who is also going to be in there for early playing time. Uh, this is already more names we mentioned last year at these spots. So you can see that we've got we've got some linebacker depth, a couple of four stars going out in there. Uh, all those guys much quicker than what we've had at the linebacker spots, much more athletic. So I look forward to seeing who emerges from that spot and look forward to seeing what they do on Saturday. And then uh, looking at our defensive defensive and defensive tackle, uh, Malik Langham is our, our highest-rated defensive line prospect, highest-rated guy on the team in that regard. Looks like he's going to play tackle. They're bulking him up. You know, he already weighs near 290. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in that spot. We've had a revolving door of D-tackles. This could be the guy that campaigns for early playing time, which is very rare to play as a freshman at D-tackle. You have to be a prodigious talent in the SEC to manage that. And so far it seems like he's going to make a case for playing time.
1: Yeah. He didn't make it on the field last year as a, as a true freshman, you know, even a red, even a red shirt freshman, when you have that veteran, a group, um, you have to really make a move. Um, And he's a guy, yeah. Trying to figure out where is he best suited to play? You know, we, we call our basically, we basically only have one quote unquote defensive end. That's the spot held by Zuniga. And then we have a nose tackle and a defensive tackle. Um, sometimes that's referred to as a defensive end. Our terminology is that's that's a defensive tackle. Um, but in a three, four, what you'd like to see out of that spot is a little bit of a pass rush. If that guy is really effective drop of rushing the passer, you can do a little more creative things behind that by having your outside linebacker, the, you know, the polite position, drop back into coverage, do different things on the field, rush from different positions. So, if a guy like Melangham emerges, it just creates more opportunities for you to confuse the offense with where the rush is coming from. And you, cause you have to commit more blockers to a guy who's kind of an interior lineman,
3: especially if we can stop the run. We struggled so much last year in our base three, four to stop the run to where we really didn't do it. We ran either a four, three or a five, two. We talked a lot about that. And I think they're hopeful uh, with especially all the weight he's put on that he can be a two gap three down lineman. So he can handle two offensive linemen, and that's, that's kind of the goal. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're projecting to see. So take a look at that on the spring game. And then lastly, two other guys, Jaden Hill, another highly rated corner behind Chris Steele. Of course, Chris Steele's getting all the pub, but Jaden Hill having himself a fine spring as well. And then uh, Will Harrod, he's, he's our highest rated prospect. And so those freshmen are kind of battling for their spots and where they're going to be and who's going to get
1: what. And so you'll see him uh, debuting in a Gator uniform. Yeah, you should see basically all the freshman linemen who are here because they're they're going to rotate through all those guys because you're trying to have two different units out there, most likely. So who knows what those guys look like. If they're, if they're capable at all, maybe they're barely holding on the begin. These guys are really just high school seniors. So you should see like every offensive lineman we have, and I wouldn't get too high or low any of their performance. So uh, if you see someone stand out, you know, pancaking people, that's good news. I wouldn't get too up or down about them though.
3: And, and let's put this in context. Imagine for a second that you are either 17 or 18. If you're like me and you were a senior in high school, you were 17. And if you're like a lot of these guys, you're 18. And you graduated early and you came on campus. And here you are at the University of Florida. You've now gone through you know 10 to 12 practices. And you're going to play in front of people for the first time. Certainly, you have never played in front of 50,000 people uh, in high school. You played against maybe 10 or 12,000 if you were a big high school, right? And you went to the state championship, you played against maybe... 15,000 at the most. But now you're playing in front of all these people. But more importantly, at your high school, you would have been one of maybe four guys if your high school was exceptional that were going to play in Division I. If your high school is unbelievable, you may have had three guys that were going to play for a Power 5 school. Most of these guys were the guy on their team. So every single practice, they went up against someone that was vastly inferior on the other side. Every game they played with you know, maybe two or three a season, they were vastly dominant over someone else. Then they walk in, they're undersized, they're not as strong, and now they're going up against grown men who have been playing other college-grown men and have had a year under the system, or two or three. It's a huge undertaking for these young guys to come through. Spring is fun to think about that. Put yourself in their shoes and think about, A, how exciting that is for them, and B, the challenge that's in front of them. So it's something fun to watch, and you kind of really get in the mindset of a guy that's stepping into this big challenge. He's, he's seeing what he, can, what he can do, what he's made of, and uh, it can really help a younger guy's confidence to have a good performance against veteran guys when the lights are on, when people see it happening. And speaking of confidence, Alan, Dan Mullen specifically said this year is very different from last year entering the spring for one main reason. It's that the team has totally bought in to what Dan Mullen and the staff can achieve, not only as far as the Gators winning or losing, but also the trust and the faith that the staff can make you a better football player. Dan specifically mentioned guys at the beginning of spring practice last year that were not on anyone's NFL radar, and this year they've entered the draft. So he's basically saying the health of the culture is way different than it was before. This, to me, is the best thing that we've talked about this whole time because teams have got to buy into their coaching staff. And we knew last year could have been very treacherous. It could have been very ugly. It could have been very tough. So to sit here now where the whole team, by the coach's own admission, is is confidently bought into what's going on is, again, I think the best thing that I'm walking into for the spring game on Saturday. What do you make of the confidence of this team and that sort of buy-in? How important is that to you?
1: I think very important. It's really hard to quantify it you can try to like read between the lines and, and look for certain things. And sometimes you don't know until after the fact you get through the season and say that team wasn't very bought in or sometimes an excuse for poor performance. But I do think as a coach, one of the most important things you're doing is building a culture and that requires buy-in. If you're, you have if you have a great co- culture in your mind that you're asking people to buy into and no one's buying into it, you got nothing or you, that's a bad culture. Um, and so I'm sure there's a lot, of things that the coaching staff wanted to do last year that couldn't get to. Because you have to do the base level install of what are our expectations, even what are our formations, what is our lingo. So they don't have to worry about that this year for most of the team. That you already have enough people who understand it, they can bring those other people along. And then even from a conditioning level, something that's been talked about that the baseline condition and strength was at a very low level uh, with McIlwain. So these guys are already showing up in the spring in much better shape. So their baseline from where they're starting out is so much higher that they're able to make even more gains. So you're not starting from scratch with them, essentially, with the strength and conditioning program. So I'm sure the coaching staff is really pleased um, with you know what things they're able to talk about and what things they don't have to cover with this group. Um, now, that always ebbs and flows. But if the team is bought in, that allows you to do a lot more like next level stuff with them than if you're just convincing them that hey this baseline stuff is gonna work. Alright, let's talk about spring game itself. you few and get your opinion on a few of these things. Uh maybe my favorite thing of the McIlwain era was that he moved this game to Friday night. I loved it. It felt like an event wasn't scalding hot. You can show up at the stadium lights are on. Thought it was a really cool thing. Uh Dan Mullins moved it back to Saturday specifically Saturday at one o'clock. I've uh, been to a lot of Florida spring games where you come away toasted and exhausted because of how hot it is. What's your opinion? Do you like it on a Saturday The kind of, you know, it's like a Saturday in the fall and you get the fans there. Maybe more people can show up or would you prefer it on a Friday night? I think both. I prefer
3: it because I live in Gainesville on a Friday night because it's easy for me. It's not as hot. Like you mentioned, it's, it's, it's you know, the sun sets it's, 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 it's great. You go to dinner afterwards or before, it's, it's a good event. The weather's nice. The setup's nice. Saturday at 1 just reminds me of all the spring games where, like you said, you're just melting out there. But if I imagine myself to be living in Orlando or Jacksonville or Tampa or Tallahassee or somewhere else and I've got a family and I want to go see the game, Friday night is not happening. It's just not happening. So if you think about the spring game being an opportunity for the casual fan that may never come to a game in the fall because of financial limitations or other things – this does give them that opportunity. And I think therefore the mission matches up better with a Saturday performance than a Friday night one. Even if I personally prefer Friday night because I live here. I, I therefore, if I was Dan Mullen, I think I would I would do a Saturday
1: game as well. Never forget you are a man of the people. All right. So some of the other stuff that Dan Mullen brought to the spring game last year was a few, I don't know, kind of rah-rah moments or a few I don't want to call them tricks. But unexpected things where let's throw the ball to Travis McGriff running off the sideline. Let's, you know, I think they were supposed to throw it to Doug Johnson maybe and have him throw a pass, you know, stuff that I guess technically ended up in the stat line. But um, kind of those goofy moments that where it feels more like, hey, we're having fun out here. Do you like that kind of stuff?
3: It doesn't matter to me, but that's not the kind of fan that I am. But I think there's lots of fans that love to see their former Gator heroes doing stuff. And again, this is a showcase for the program. So therefore, it's well-intentioned. I think it probably hits the mark for people that love that kind of stuff. For me, I don't really care. I don't need to see anyone out there doing anything. I don't need to see Danny Warfel out throwing a pass to someone that's fake. Now, maybe if maybe if you have Danny Warfel throwing a real pass under real conditions to somebody, that's pretty exciting. But if it's going to be snap the ball and let Danny throw to a wide-open receiver who runs off the sideline, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't move the needle come for on, me Come on, Danny, there.
1: get in there. Come uh, on, come on yeah, I, I don't care one way or the other. It's kind of fun. It, if you're wanting to set a fun tone and atmosphere and kind of bring up people's like emotions and feelings and hype, if that's the goal, go for it. Um I you know, we're people who are analyzing this thing, so we're like, let's see some actual stuff on the field that we can talk about, but that's not the whole purpose of the spring game. And, and I get that, and you're right about the the Saturday thing. Um, me personally, I love it on Friday night, but I know that's not the best for everybody. So this isn't. There's no one way to do this. People do these spring games differently around the country. Uh, personally, I don't care if they do the rah-rah stuff, but I'm not annoyed by it either.
3: No, and maybe I will say that they're not hitting the right rah-rah stuff for me because one of my favorite Gator sports moment of all time is a rah-rah thing that happened. Midnight Madness, Billy Donovan, came out of a coffin. I was there. It was epic. It was it was a top five Gator sporting moment for me. I was a student. It was legendary. I loved every second of it. And there was absolutely no purpose for that. It was pure theatrics. The lights were down. It was amazing. I loved it. So maybe I'm saying, I don't care about the kind of raw raw antics they're imploring, but if you give me something like that, it'll become a moment I love. So I think it's in the right hemisphere. Maybe, Doing yeah. that stuff can be amazing or it can be cheesy, but it's certainly not going to be anything you look at and think, wow, that ruined it for me. What, Alan, is Dan Mullen's largest accomplishment thus far? He's accomplished a lot. Give me his largest or most impressive accomplishment.
1: There's a couple things I'm considering here. His work with Felipe Franks. Um, I'm going to talk about recruiting in a second. But I think it's, as he would say, returning the Gator standard. And maybe I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid on this and buying into the propaganda that he's putting out there. But does seem like he's brought stability and coherency to what we're doing as a football program that it doesn't feel like things are always about to go off the rails. Or if we have a couple of bad games, this coach might get fired. seems like he's a professional guy who knows what he's doing. Players are going to get better. We're going to win games. I doubt we ever bottom out and have a four win season. So Again, we've always questioned a little bit, can Dan Mullen reach the heights of college football that Gator fans have experienced before under Spurrier and Urban Meyer? Still to be answered. But I do think he's returned us to a level of national prominence that we had slipped below, like the acceptable minimum value Of what we want to be as a program. Now again, that we Gator fans are never gonna be satisfied with the acceptable minimum, but we had dropped below the acceptable minimum, and I don't think that's gonna happen again under Dan Mullen.
3: I think his largest or best accomplishment was his game plan to win games last year with a tremendously flawed team. That was that was a savant level of coaching, knowing you had to steal plays at certain times, game planning those various plays so they were not the same week to week, and then getting Felipe Frank's not to turn the ball over. All of those things had to happen for us to win 10 games and we did them. And you saw the team progress, which is what you mentioned. That's what brings stability. Progression brings stability. Evidence of progression brings stability. All of those things worked hand in hand, but I thought he really did a nice job uh, with assessing what he had, using his resources effectively, and then allowing us to compete and win football games. Job well done. I mean, it's just a job well done. Now he set the table. Uh, for him to be able without excuse to see if he can get us to the next level. And I think that's what you want to do. And so therefore Alan putting that a little bow on that within one year, he's already hit that sort of, Hey, I'm a, you know, low ceiling, high four guy. I've already gone further than you thought. I've already put the program on stable footing. And now the question to ask is not, will I get us to stability? but will I get us to championship level? And to do that all in one year is is fantastic. It's remarkable. And, And that is his biggest accomplishment from my point. Recruiting. This time last year, we talked a lot about Dan Mullen's weakness is recruiting. Is he going to recruit well enough for us to get to this level? What is going to happen? We all know that we closed very strong given where we were, yet our class was still, we called it a tier three class. Liked our class, solid, but not what you may have seen a, top tier recruiter do so now our 2020 class Allen currently ranked number five way too early to be getting too Almost deep into this yeah doesn't matter why am i sharing it with you because you can see progression Ranked right? number five is that good yes that's good what do we still need to see elite guys do we have any of those guys yet no but these as tyler rumery our, our number one message board fan and savant will tell you these rankings will change a lot depending on who starts recruiting who and what and they'll slide from number 100 to number 20 or whatever the case may be as it stands right now, still no five stars. We have two top 100 guys, which you know is a metric I love, and you know no top 40 guys. So I only bring this up to say momentum is building. The fact that we have the number five class now is not what we had last year. So that's a step higher. Yeah, we were we way, we were in way, way behind. Way behind. So it's a big step forward. So again, what do we, what do we see here for me in recruiting, Alan? I see stability. I see a chance for us to get the top guys. I see an early class that's already foundationally strong with four guys in the top 300, which gives us a shot to finish in the top five, which we did not have this time last year. So progression, progression, progression. Therefore, what I want to ask you, Alan, is where way too early for this, but where do you think we need to finish? In recruiting, and I want two, two things here from you. Ranking-wise, more importantly, how many top 100 guys do you think you want to have signing day next year for you to get on this podcast next spring and say we're at the level of recruiting we need to be at to win a national championship?
1: That's tough. Um, I don't want to put out numbers that I want to walk back later, but if you get a high enough percentage of your class inside the top 100... And then you have a a sprinkling of those top 25, 30. And the reason we're saying that, it's usually about the cutoff for a five-star. And we do have one guy who's like right there that is a five-star in in some um, rating services. Then that's where you kind of position yourself up, right up next to those elite, elite Alabama, Clemson, Georgia level currently, where you're maybe not right at their level, but you're close enough to them that you can reasonably stack up your talent with theirs. Um, so I don't want to say yet, like what that means, but definitely we're going to need, we talked about the one thing we haven't done is those elite guys, um, those five-star level guys, and then a higher percentage of your class in the top 100. We, we did really well, especially if you broaden that to just slightly outside the top hundred, like the top 120, you, you, you bring in a few more guys into that metric. So fantastic job by Mullen in that there's that one more step And then, you know, then you could go higher than that. But only some people only basically Saban has ever gotten to that level. And that's not the expectation. So there's one more step for him to kind of move us to that top level where we can expect to compete to championships year in, year out. I don't know that we'll ever get there or that we have to be there every year to consider it a successful recruiting class. But there is that gap still that remains. And again, you were pushing the panic button last year because of the trend line. Not to say it was definitely going to have to happen that way, but the trend line this year is there's no panic at all. Like it, the, every possibility is there. It hasn't, again, it hasn't done it yet, but he hasn't not done it. So uh, we're not trending away. We're trending in the right direction, who I think is another encouraging sign.
3: Yeah, that's a perfect way to look at it. You know, you press the panic button when the historical data tells you we're in a spot where most programs struggle, and you press the excitement button when you say we're in a spot where most programs excel. And that's where we are now. What we haven't done yet is proven it. And that's what we're looking for. And so we're going to say, okay, we're here. We're ready. The table's set. Can we bring the people to the table? And I know that that stands number one priority. And I think you're looking to get in that tier two recruiting range, Bama, Georgia, or tier one. We probably won't get there if, again, Tyler's on this podcast right now. He's going to say, because we're not paying people like Georgia does and we're not paying people like Alabama is. And so therefore we're tier two. Fine. Let's look for tier two. Tier two is going to be six or so top 100 players, six, seven, eight, somewhere in there, or six top 100s with two of those guys being elite, something like that. There's different metrics. You can slide it around, but that's what we're targeting. That's what we're looking for. We're well on our way to that right now. And that's exciting news. There's plenty of reason to be optimistic. I would already say, Alan, with the recovery that Dan had at year one and the projection now for the 2020 class that he's ahead of his reputation as a recruiter. And that's all we could have asked for because no one expects Dan Mullen to become a Meyer or Kirby Smart or Nick Saban. That's not who he is. And that's okay. You don't have to be that guy to win. He's an exceptional team builder. So, so far, everything is trending in the right direction, which is what's going to make, I think, this season very interesting. For sure. The close, do we keep it going?
1: The close to that recruiting class bought him a lot of currency, I think, in the fan base and a lot of cover to keep going in the direction that he wants to go without everyone, you know, on podcast hitting panic buttons. So... All right, one of our core pieces of our coaching staff, Todd Grantham, had a little flirtation with the NFL with the Cincinnati Bengals, ultimately decided not to leave. It came out that we had given him a a pay increase after the season even before I think the flirtation you know happened. So he they had already positioned themselves against that expecting that to happen. Let's say he had bolted for the NFL. How bad would that have been for us? Do you think that major loss loss that we could have dealt with or eh, whatever.
3: Definitely major loss at the stage of the program right now. We could have dealt with it as well. So it probably falls in between those two things. Florida's defense has been good for a long time because the players are good. The scheme itself on defense does matter. Grantham has shown to be very adept at that. That's kind of the details. And therefore it's a major loss because you're not going to replace what he's done. His track record speaks for itself. There are just not a lot of guys like him. So you will not replace that. Maybe you get 5% less than that, which may translate to one game. That's kind of the difference you're looking at. Maybe you win or lose one game different.
1: Or you biff on a hire and you go way down.
3: Right, which is possible, and that's the key. I don't think Dan Mullen, given his track record of hiring defensive coordinators, would biff one. So let's say it's one game, which is a lot. Don't get me wrong. That's the difference between being in an SEC title game or or anything else. It's huge, and that's why I say major loss. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think especially at the point of the season after the coaching carousel had kind of come to a close, there, there wouldn't have been like an obvious, okay, we're going to go get this guy or we're, we're prepared. I, I think it would have set the program back, especially in the time and place. I I think Grantham is a guy. I, I don't expect him to leave for another college program. It's not like he has any great loyalty to UF in particular. He's, you know, these guys move around. It, it wouldn't be the most shocking thing, but we're paying him at a level that he doesn't have to go. I got to look elsewhere to, Increase. Well, if he keeps performing and our defense keeps climbing, we'll keep paying him. So I think we're in a good spot with him. I think he proved last year that he could um, build a defense. And I think this year he could prove that he could turn that talent into an elite group, Uh, you know, assuming things like health and other other potential difficulties. But I think that would have been a huge loss for us at that point uh, in the calendar. So glad that he stayed, I guess is what I want to say.
3: Dan Mullen, speaking of transfers, said this. If they don't have a good reason or a plan, I try to talk them out of it. Do you like that approach?
1: Yeah, I I think there's an impulse if things aren't going the way you want to jump. Uh, And I'm tempted to say usually your problems aren't geographic. It's like if you have issues, they're gonna follow you. If you're not, you know, athletic or or good enough yet, it's not like you're gonna be magically good enough somewhere else unless you transfer to a lower tier. Um, and sometimes that's a right move for people, you know, and that could be a part of their plan or a good reason, as Dan Mullen says. But for a guy who's just not getting there fast enough or you know, he's got a guy ahead of him. Well, if you transfer, you're gonna to have to sit out a year. And there could be somebody ahead of you there. I do, I think patience with college football because you do have to sit out for a year and that could be changing with all the waiver things that the NCAA is giving people. But if the system reverts back to its traditional course, I do think patience is probably the best thing. Now, when you have these high profile quarterbacks, I don't expect them to stay like the Justin Fields thing. I I knew he was going to transfer as soon as from beat him out. Uh, those guys just aren't willing to sit behind a guy for two or three years. Now, one year, whatever. Um, But as the nature of the beast with them, I think other players where you can get multiple guys on the field, um, you're an injury away from having a major role or just improvement on your own. So I, I do like that he preaches patience and want guys to be intentional about what they're doing and not reacting rashly or emotionally. Yeah.
3: I think this is great fatherly advice. You mentioned there's a lot of rash reaction, a lot of emotional reaction. It would be very frustrating for a player to think he was one thing and then recognize he's not getting playing time. There's a, there's an expectation and a dream and it's unfulfilled and it hurts. And therefore you could make a rash decision where the coach could be giving you the best advice, which is, Hey, hang in there. You can win this thing. You can get a shot. And if the guy's got a plan, that would mean he's thought it out already. He's thought about the fact that, Hey, maybe I'm not good enough at this level. And I want to go to a D two school or I want to go to a non power five conference. Those are good reasons. I think coach Mullen would say, Hey, I agree with your assessment. That's a good reason. Or, you know, the depth chart is what it is here. I can't get past it. If I go to Louisville, it's easier. I mean, whatever. But I, I like his approach. I think he's not doing that out of selfish reasons. I think he's trying to protect these guys from themselves. And if you become a victim of the sort of college carousel market where it's always someone else's fault, it's the wrong program, it's the wrong place, it's the wrong time, right. then you miss your very limited window of opportunity. And so I like the approach. And I think it's uh, I think it's good that Dan Mullen from time to time peels back the curtain and we get to see kind of how he handles some of these internal things. I think it shows a lot about some of the wisdom or some of the stature that he has when it comes to dealing with the program. No coach is perfect here, right? Uh, but I, I like his general policies.
1: Agreed. And there are there are good reasons to transfer, especially like, say you're a player who fits in a certain scheme. All this has a lot to do with quarterbacks. Like, you know, you're a drop back passer and your coach gets fired and a guy comes in running the triple option. You're going to transfer. That's a good reason. So it's not like every transfer is equal. Sometimes guys leave And you're like, what are you doing? You're just being a nut job. And other times like, yeah, I see that. Um, Good luck to you. Hope it works out. Uh, One transfer that did happen. This is maybe slightly surprising since he stuck it out this year. Antonius Clayton transfers to Georgia Tech. Very highly rated guy. Was the highest rated guy on our roster, I think. Um, Five-star-ish type player. Never really saw the field. How do you feel about hearing that news?
3: I feel fine with it. I think he was in the program long enough. He's a, he's a junior now uh, to know that if he hadn't gotten on the field yet, and I'm sure in the off season, they sat down with him and probably had a very frank conversation, which led to this transfer. It was probably unlikely that he was going to win a job here and getting a fresh start does make sense. He did stick it out. He, He was here. He put his time in. He invested his time. I don't know what happened or how it went down but I think that's the right time to transfer is you do want to try to make the most and maybe a change of scenery will help him at this point in time. Now, Alan, what I want to ask you is, is this an example where we shouldn't care about recruiting rankings? Because clearly this guy was an elite player and he never did anything for us. So therefore does it really matter if we're getting top guys or is that an overrated stat?
1: Well, I would say it does matter because some of those guys are not going to work out. So you don't want one in Tony's Clayton. You want like four of them. Odds are someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to not work out either mentally, emotionally, or maybe just, it, these are all projections. It, you could have a wrong projection. So if you pin your hopes on one guy. Now, quarterback is maybe the one place where, you know, you feel hit more if you miss on a guy because you can only take usually one of those per class. But you want to have a lot of high-level defensive linemen. And, again, you can take projects and you can take a guy like a Taven Bryan who you're like, this is a three-star guy. I could see a path where he gets to be a first-round pick. And that happens. That's good. You want to take some flyers on those guys where your evaluation of them is so much better. Or you see, this is a lottery ticket. This is 50-50. He could bust. It could be great. But when you pin your hopes, you only have a couple of those guys, and then they don't work out. It's hurts you way more uh, than if you had had guys, you know, a lot of those guys. And you know what? Credit to this coaching staff. They got some guys who are three-star guys like Polite who are going to be first-round picks. So you want those guys too. Um but I would say this kind of almost reinforces the fact that you need more of these guys to get there because some of them aren't going to work out. Okay, uh, something that came up in the news, a lot, a lot of discussion around Scott Strickland and his schedule philosophy. Now, football schedules are created so far in advance, so it's not like you can, if you're a new AD, you can't come in and change things immediately. Um, but kind of a discussion on home and home series with power five conferences. So you see Georgia playing things like, like this Notre Dame, they schedule something with Florida state. I believe James, what is your overall opinion on this? Do you think that would be good for us? Like, would you like to see us start to schedule home and homes with power five conference teams? Even if that means one less home game. I would love it. I would
3: love it. I want this. I'm for this. Please do it. Scott Strickland. We know you listen to this podcast. Therefore, what up Scott? Please do it. Why do I like this, Alan? With every passing year, I care more and more about quality, competitive games that are fun to watch than I do winning a national title. Winning a national title would be fun because it means I get quality, compelling games to watch. So those those interests are aligned, but it's very hard to win a national title. So if I can guarantee that I get an extra compelling, interesting game to watch, I'm going to do it. Because, again, I don't get a ring. I don't get extra life satisfaction if the Gators win. I just get more entertaining games. Nothing hurts me more as a fan than to look at the schedule and go, these four games are worthless trash. I don't want to watch them. It's just, it's just not fun. You watch it because you're a Gator fan, and we're going to analyze it for the podcast. But it's not fun to watch 62 nothing victories. Like really, it's just not. You need them in the beginning of the season, but after that, Alan, I would love to watch games like that. I would love to have you and I get on a plane and go to a road game at Oklahoma, far Oklahoma. Let's go. I want to go there. I want to see the campus. I want to experience their pregame rituals. That's awesome to me. That's well worth not winning a national title to me as a fan. So I'm all about it. I hope we do more of this. I don't care if it makes our schedule harder. I would rather have the entertainment.
1: hundred percent agree. I, it's so rare that you're going to be able to win a national title anyway. I think some of the trend of college you know, football playoffs or bust, I don't think it's totally healthy for the sport. So I'd like if the regular season becomes as interesting as possible. Now, we already do play a major conference power every year in Florida State. And we also play in the most difficult conference, the SEC. So I can see from a a Dan Mullen perspective that you're just making my job harder and you're not really rewarding me, probably. If I lose that game, I'm still held accountable. So I think from a coaching perspective, perspective in a how long do I want to keep my job? I don't know that you get that big a boost for beating somebody like Oklahoma versus not making sec titles and playoffs. So I see the balance there. I would love to play USC and by that, I mean Southern Cal. I would love to, like you said, Oklahoma, Texas, that sounds super fun. And the home and home is great. I mean, we lose a game against the cupcake. Like I said, I don't care. Now, Again, there's a point where you probably stack your schedule so much that you have basically limited yourself. You're never going to compete for a playoff because the odds of you winning those games are so low. And, you know, overall, the playoff committee still said that we value wins as much as anything. But give me – that's you know, we're doing this year with Miami. It's a, it's a neutral site. So if it's not really about home games, if it's not just strictly about revenue – you know, I think one less home game, we could probably make up for it. You know, there's, I think people are more excited to come to games, create a little bit of scarcity in there. One less home game. I don't think you're going to lose that much um, overall, hopefully the bottom line. But I would love it. Like you said, it'd be so fascinating if we had a USC on the schedule, if we had a Notre Dame on the schedule, bring it on.
3: Hopefully that will happen. And great point, Alan, about the coaching perspective. If I'm Dan Mullen, I want the easiest schedule ever that gets me into a playoff year in and year out for my entire career. I could care less about how entertained you as a fan are with my competitive games. So there is a duality there. And what's fun about this question is now we can play the role of athletic director, which we won't discuss because in your own head, you can connect the dots, but the athletic director balances both of those things, both of those things. And that's what makes it interesting to be an athletic director is you are serving two interests there, not just one. The coach says, Hey, don't do it to me. The booster's like, yeah, do it. I want to go. It's awesome. And you try to, I think, strike these games. Like you see with Miami, Florida tends to do it every four to five years. And so you kind of, okay, coach, deal with one every four or five-year cycle. Fine. Uh, But with that being said, I think the sport is
1: moving towards that model, though.
3: Yeah, Alabama and Georgia basically do it every single year. Say what you want about Bama. They will play anybody in that opening game.
1: Well, it is a they neutral site game, though.
3: Sure, but they don't shy away. No, You don't see don't. us doing that. We're very protective. So well, now, you know, Miami, I'm, some, I'm Michigan. we're opening, you know, Michigan. This is recent, though. And so I like the move. And and home and home, even better. Do I want to go to the big house? Absolutely. Do I want to go to the horseshoe? Absolutely. Now, if I'm a coach, I want to go there. No, I'm super mad at Scott Strickland. What are you doing to me? Why are you making me play on the road at one of these places? But different interests. So for me, I'll keep rooting for it and say, fine, if we don't win national titles for Dan Mullen. I get it. All right, let's finish the show. It's March Madness, now April. National Championship game is tonight. By the time most of you listen to this, it will either be during or after the national title game. I want to talk a little bit about the Gators. So by the way, if you don't care about Gator basketball at all and you're a football fan, you can sign off. See you next time. Thanks so much for your patronage and your listenership. Check us out in all the usual places. Leave us feedback or a message. If you want to ride on, probably five to ten minutes max of basketball talk will ensue and then we'll be done. So Alan... Do you consider this past season for the Gators a win against Nevada in the tournament, a success? Looking at it in totality, looking back and saying, is this or was this a success?
1: Absolutely. Unequivocally. And uh, I say that with our current circumstances. So with the roster that we have, with the injuries that we sustained, playing three true freshmen almost all year, having seniors who were, I don't know inconsistent <laughs> to put it mildly because uh, what was the ceiling of this team? I think the ceiling of this team was sweet 16. That means we were one game off. So that's a very like fine line. So if you're saying that this, this season wasn't a success, that means you're saying if we just won one more game, the season would be successful. Uh, and I think you can do that with the tournament, right? So there's a little bit of plus minus there, or, you know, pass fail. We made the tournament we won a game, and then we lost a team that was really good. So, I don't know. I, I'm not like, I don't aspire this is the heights of uh, call it, or Gator basketball, but I definitely think this was a successful season. We made the tournament. We won a game. That's fantastic. Agree? Disagree?
3: I agree. I think we rescued this season from the absolute pit of despair. Uh, Justin Seitz want to give you a little love. He came on the podcast and said that, he thought that the, the highs would not be as high and the lows would not be as low as the previous year, which we dogged him for kind of all year long because the lows I thought were very low. And there was a lot of variance. But he predicted that we would win one game in the tournament way back before the ball was even tipped. So he nailed it. Congratulations. I thought
1: I was like, that was low, right? And, and, yeah. we,
3: and we thought at that point in time that Sweet 16 was the absolute max, like you mentioned. Yeah. So looking at how the season went, looking at how the team looked, looking at the bracket draw that we got, I think you have to be pleased with what went down. I think a lot of questions remain. And and here's what I think maybe is the most important thing, Alan. I have so many questions about Mike White's offensive coaching ability, about how certain things went during the season, about certain motivational ploys. I have a lot of questions. But I feel like next season is a rare gift in the world of fandom where the season is going to almost entirely answer every Mike White question you would have. Like, we're going to know at the end of next season, barring like an incredible rash of injuries, whether or not Mike White can really coach at this level, because we're going to have one of the most talented teams we've ever assembled at this school. We're going to have enough returning guys to institute the culture. And we're going to get to see whether this year was, like you mentioned, a very flawed roster being managed by a coach who is doing what he could, running a style that's outside of what he wants to run, kind of way outside his own scope. To this upcoming team, a team that has everything you would want if you're Mike White, will this be a huge turnaround? If it is, then it's going to be, you know, skies limit for Mike White. We're all excited. If it's not, then you press the panic button. But it's, it's, a, it's a rare gift. All the questions I have, I don't have to ask them right now because I know they're going to be answered. And that's really nice. We never got that with McIlwain in football. We didn't get it with Muschamp in football. We're going to get it in basketball with Mike White. I love it. I'm stoked about next year, and and I feel great knowing this time next year, I'm going to know right. what I think about Mike White as a basketball coach, and I don't have to worry about the lingering questions from this season. But without a doubt, if you're a Florida basketball fan who said this season was not successful, I'm not sure what you were hoping for realistically. you know The Vegas odds are right in line with what we did performance-wise, preseason to postseason. If you look at what was going on in the middle of the season, we were an absolute train wreck, a disaster. What do we say on this podcast, Alan? Good coaches are marked by progression throughout the season. There's no doubt this team was much better at the end than they were in the middle in the beginning. That's right. solid.
1: And anytime you have three freshmen playing as much as you did and you know inconsistent upperclassmen, you're going to have inexplicable things like the Georgia loss at home. Or just, man, that shouldn't happen, but it did because this team has so much variance. And I, I think... You know, the one, maybe the most unpredictable thing was Jalen Hudson going just kind of tonic in the first half of the year. I think if we win two more non-conference games, our seed line is maybe all the way up to a seven or maybe up to a six. And then we could maybe reasonably talking about getting to the sweet 16 or maybe even higher. And that would have been just top level stuff. So even with that, we got to just about our ceiling for this team, so I think, like you said, good job, Mike White. And also, I think your major question when that when we hired him is, can he recruit? He's n- he's never led a major program. He's never hauled in epic classes. You know, he's recruited well for the places he's been, like Louisiana Tech. Can he recruit at Florida at an elite level? I think this class, you know, combined with you know last year's class with Nimhart and these guys. Absolutely. Yes. You, with this level of talent, you can make final fours. You can win national championships. Now you then have to manage those people um, and get them to compete and get them to play at a high level. And I think with this team, they never stopped competing. They played hard defensively. Now they were limited in what we could accomplish, but they played hard and they never checked out defensively. I think that shows a lot. So, you know, One of the things you were hoping for, I know, is for Mike White to bring in maybe some offensive help, game planning, because he can clearly coach motivation. He can clearly coach defense. Can we be varied enough offensively and diverse enough offensively to take advantage of our talent? I think that's the question, but we'll have that answered. Like you said, this team is going to be talented. This team is going to be filled with high-level athletes. There shouldn't be anything holding them back, like you said, outside of a rash of crazy injuries or things, weird things happening. We'll have a lot more to answer. I think this season is going to be exciting. I'm really looking forward to seeing these guys get on the court together. It should be a really fun dynamic team. Again, not like you know, the Joe Kim Noah 04s fours, where they rolled into town that second year after they won the championship and was like, okay, we're expecting greatness. We know exactly what these guys are capable of. We don't know, but that's kind of the fun that they could do it. And I'm really excited to see if they do
3: this is incredibly fun. It's like you've built an experimental car and and you're taking it for its first drive and and you have all the hope in the world. This thing is going to be, you know, a Ferrari when you're done with it, but you don't know it could just as well be in the, in the junk heap. And I think you made a couple of interesting points that I want to finish up my basketball thoughts with Alan one, Mike White's MO coming in was that they scored a ton of points. He was an offensive guy Two, He had no proven recruiting ability. So now what do we see several years into the Mike White experiment? We have no idea if he actually can coach offense because we've been very limited. Apparently, he's amazing at coaching defense, which was not at all a thing that he did or ran or had. And he's turning into the best recruiter we've ever had at the University of Florida, blowing Billy Donovan out of the water with the top-level talent he's pulling in. So it's, it's weird. It's almost like everything's on its head, which is why next year is such a gift. Because every single question will get answered. And I really can't think of too many times that's a thing you get as a fan. And I'm so excited about that season for that reason. It's the culmination of everything I like. It's watching players I'm excited about. It's watching strategy and it's watching a coach. And it's getting to get answers, definitive answers, minus, like we said, a million injuries, that we are going to know what he's made of. And I'm certainly hopeful that this is a scenario where he's a great recruiter, He's maybe an average offensive coach, a great motivational guy, a great culture guy. And that leads to wins in basketball. You can win that way. Coupling that with an offensive assistant coaching hire, much like Billy did with a defensive coaching hire with Larry Shiat. Maybe that's the magic formula. I don't know. But if you're a basketball fan and you're a Florida fan, you should be in for a huge treat next season.
1: Really intriguing. Really, really intriguing. And I think this football season is going to be really interesting as well. Uh, a lot of pieces in place, for this team to be very successful. Hopefully we take one more step with this spring game. We get a little more info, a little sneak peek at what these guys could do in the fall. Thanks for listening this week. We'll be back next week after the spring game, spring game to break down what we could conceivably learn from it, what stood out, what questions do we still have. So thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week.
2: mypatriotsupply.com